community economies was more our step away from purely critique into a sort of more positive intervention. Well, what kind of economies do we actually want to create? More ethical economies that really put people and the planet centre stage. And so the term community economies was coined. This is Frontiers of Commoning with David Bollier. Our guest today is Catherine Gibson, who's a research professor at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University in Australia, where her research is focused on economic geography, especially diverse economies, household labor, non-capitalist economic activities, social enterprises, and cooperatives, among other topics. Catherine brings a feminist theory and post-colonial and queer theory to the topic as well. She and her colleagues are very big into using participatory action research in hybrid research collectives to study the varieties of socioeconomic life. Catherine is especially well known for her longtime collaboration with Professor Julie Graham, a geography professor at UMass Amherst. Uh, and they often wrote together under the shared byline J.K. Gibson Graham until Graham's passing many years ago. Welcome, Catherine. Tell me how you got into community economics as a distinct topic, because it's not something that standard economics really focuses on. And I imagine that you and your colleagues, especially Julie Graham, had to develop it from scratch. Yes, we did in a way. And it, it's a term, community economies is how we refer to it, that developed out of our interest in having some kind of positive intervention in questions of local economic development that weren't locked into old kind of economic thinking. We worked together for many years in political economy kind of approaches. And we then got to a point where we felt that what we were doing was kind of studying capitalism in all its variability and its incredible ingenuity, but not not really coming up with some way of transcending or moving beyond or transitioning from a kind of capitalist economic formation. So the idea of diverse economies was our first step into re-theorizing or reframing economy. And then community economies was more our step away from purely critique into a sort of more positive intervention. Well, what kind of economies do we actually want to create? More ethical economies that really put people and the planet center stage. And so the term community economies was coined. And I think it's a term that has a lot of resonances, but also a lot of problems because it relates to different uses of the term community, both politically and in um, local economic development that we were kind of trying to navigate around. So we've got a particular perspective. Give, give me a little bit of context here. What years were we talking about when you first developed this? And in terms of political economy, what were the prevailing approaches for studying both standard economics as well as heterodox economics? We both started our PhD research in the late 1970s. The first paper that Julie and I wrote together was actually a graduate school uh, research paper on deindustrialization. And we went and interviewed uh, manufacturers in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. So we were interested in the whole issue of re capitalist restructuring, which was happening in the late 70s, early 80s. People were trying to understand what is this? What's happened to the world? Why is this internationalization of capital happening? Exit from regions like the New England region to the South of America or, or overseas. So we were kind of very much involved in this theorizing from a 
pretty much a Marxist perspective, the restructuring of capitalism that gave rise to what people call globalization now. So for many years, really through the 80s, through to the early 90s, Julie and I were very involved in trying to track uh, falling rates of profit in manufacturing sectors and why capital was moving and what was the reaction to uh, labor struggles and to try and find cheaper labor overseas. So we were part of a whole cohort of people like Barry Bluestone and Bennett Harrison and others who were interested in deindustrialization, but also interested in industrialization in new parts of Asia and so on. But increasingly, we felt that what we were doing was kind of just documenting what was happening and we weren't able to intervene in any kind of way to change the, the course of history to some extent and yet we'd been attracted to that kind of philosophical perspective that you understand the world in order to change it and so that's partly how influenced by our feminism and thinking about all the things that were left out of this big narrative we started to develop an approach that critiqued what we called the capitalocentrism of a lot of economic thinking mainstream neoclassical but also radical economic thinking. So this focus always on capitalism as the ideal economy against which everything else couldn't ever stand up. So our work really in the 90s, which came out first in the book, The End of Capitalism as We Knew It, a feminist critique of political economy, was that kind of critique of that kind of dominant way of theorising. And then in the next intervening 10 years, 96 to 2006, we really started to develop the diverse economies framework and move into a theory of community economies. And that was really elaborated in our book in 2006. It seems that really one of the two of the driving forces might be feminist theory in focusing on relationships and parts of the economy that were not even recognized as parts of the economy, the non-market world and the famous iceberg in which so many aspects of life are not even recognized by economics. But also, I would say the empirical work that so much marks community economies focus as opposed to the theoretical or ideological approaches. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think so. I mean, we were trained as geographers and geographers are notorious for wanting to do empirical research and talk to people and be in place. So, But even then, when we were doing our Marxist political economy, we were still doing empirical research using trying to do value calculations of falling rates of profit for different sectors. So we taught ourselves matrix algebra and things like that, and then went and talked to manufacturers and industry and so on. So I think just coming out of that geographic training, we were always very involved in empirical research. But we then moved on to doing much more place-based action research. Uh, Julie did a big project in the Pioneer Valley. I did one in Australia in the Latrobe Valley and then have gone on to do work all over the world. But I guess the feminism was one thing, the empirical work was the other. And I think the third stream was really more a philosophical theme that came out of a post-structuralist kind of approach. In other words, a, a, a critique of the kind of more structural Marxist analysis of modes of production and so on. A philosophy that started to look at identity as dissented, whether it was an economy or whether it was the self. So that really helped in terms of the theorizing that we tried to do. There's a quote that I'm reminded of that you and Julie put together, which seems to speak to how it's also a personal issue. It's not as if there's some neutral, uh, omniscient perspective. The quote goes, if to change ourselves is to change our worlds and the relation is reciprocal, then the project of history making is never a distant one, but always right here on the borders of our sensing, thinking, feeling, moving bodies. So the embodied sense of this is something that I have to say most of male economics is not too focused on. 
No. And in fact, there is an assumption that we are centered subjects, you know, that you can have the rational economic actor or the resistant worker, for instance. And I guess that's partly where we came from. We kind of started to see people were actually motivated by a whole range of different aspirations and commitments that came out of different aspects of their identity, whether it was as women or as family members or as members of an ethnicity or a race or whatever. And so that idea of a decentered self was really appealing, but it also brings to bear the kind of emotional and, and physiological aspects. So how can we feel ourselves as subjects of a different kind of economy when so much of, of what we see coming to us through advertising, through policy, is to situate us as subjects who seem to want things cheaper, you know, want more for our buck, all this kind of assumption that is made about what the who the economic subject is. Yes, I think we were very interested in the different kinds of emotions and, and partly get, came out of the conversations we had in, in the action research projects where people started to document all the different kinds of of economic transactions they are involved in, including gifting and reciprocity and waged work, but other kinds of work in kind. And the kind of a sense of self that they got from doing these things. And, and one of the, I remember one of the focus groups Julie was involved in, a younger woman was hearing one of the older retired people talking about all the range of community work they did. And she just burst into tears and said, you know, I want to be able to do that kind of work, that kind of meaningful work for other people. And here I am stuck in this particular job. So it it really was a very embodied experience of trying to do that inventory of the range of things that people do to make livelihoods. The experience of Eleanor Ostrom in political science and her studies of the commons in the 80s and 90s was marked by, let's just say, a lot of sexism. How within the academy and within male-oriented standard economics were you able to carve out this approach and give it some credibility and respectability within the academy? I mean, we were situated in two different arenas, I think. In one sense, we were situated within geography as a discipline, which is a very kind of pragmatic and forgiving discipline in a way. I mean, it's a kind of discipline that accepts a lot of different theories into it. And even though there was very much a dominant kind of political economic stream that had built up around people like David Harvey and Neil Smith and, and Dick Pete and others, there was a, a very masculinist kind of political economy work that was going on within economic geography. There was still a tolerance to some extent for this weird, wonderful stuff that we were talking about. I mean, when the end of capitalism came out, many people just thought it was totally ridiculous and rejected it. And then 10 years later, they were making it into a, a, a classic of human geography. You know? So there was a funny shift that took place. So that in geography, I think we've always had acceptance, although you know, sort of tolerance a little bit, but then increasingly more acceptance such that we've just published a handbook of diverse economies, which is actually, you know, a subfield now within social sciences or within economic geography. But the other audience was really a more radical political economy, Marxist-oriented group. And again, there was a lot of hostility to the kind of feminist critique we were making. On the other hand, at UMass, there was also this whole school of anti-essentialist Marxists who were more interested in a post-structuralist approach to Marxian theory and they were very nourishing of our thinking. So, you know, again, there was a subgroup within that bigger radical group that I think were interested in what we were saying and we were able to put out a few books in the early 2000s on class, class and its others, trying to operationalise a, a different decentered vision of class that really related to the work that Steve Resnick and Rick Wolf were doing at UMass. So I think we found a way, but I wouldn't say it's had a huge influence in economics as a whole. I think within heterodox economics, 
works, it's maybe seen as one little, little strain. I think the influence has been more amongst the kind of community development, community economy kind of practitioners, maybe more than at the discipline and theoretical level, although it's hard to tell how one's work gets you know, picked up. I'm always surprised. <laughs> Well, there's two two strands I'd like to pick up on there. One is your meeting and collaboration with Julie Graham. How did that get going? Why did that get going? Why did you choose to have a co-byline? And then let's pick up later with the evolution of the Community Economics Research Network. But let's start with uh, your collaboration with Julie. Yes. Well, it was funny because I came from Australia having completed a degree in geography. So I was very steeped in geography and done an honours degree and applied to go to do graduate to graduate school overseas. I, I felt like the old British model of doing a PhD that was what we had in Australia, which is you just you know sit and do something for three years and have a relationship with one supervisor wasn't something that I was interested in. So I applied to go to graduate school in the US and Canada and ended up going to Clark because of uh, at Clark University at Worcester in Massachusetts, because it had a range of interesting work going on in political economy, but also in phenomenological approaches. And it was very much a, a hotbed of interest and, and had a lot of a big graduate school in geography. So that's what drew me there. And the same cohort, Julie arrived driving 50 miles from the Connecticut Valley, you know, and Amherst to start a PhD in a subject where she didn't need to have had an undergraduate degree in geography because she'd actually trained in, in literature at Smith College and, and then been very involved in the women's movement and increasingly also in environmental politics. And she felt the need to go back and start to study again. And so she was uh, somewhat older than me, but arrived with her, her little bit of dub with the eat the rich sticker on the back and I was a 23 year old Australian <laughs> and we um we kind of started working together we became friends and we started taking some of the same courses so we we, we formed a kind of research group and that went on for many years so I think the the coming together in terms of our name was really in early 90 early 90s 92 93 when we were by then engaged in this feminist critique of our work and trying to develop this new thinking away from the old political economic work we were as influenced by postmodernism I suppose and the playful nature of that movement and the critique of the single author you know we were think why do we have to keep saying Gibson and Graham and Graham and Gibson and you know who's this and who's that so we just decided let's put our names together as J.K. Gibson Graham. And we both had tenure at that point. People said to us, oh, what will that do for your tenure case? And we said, well, we don't really care. In retrospect, I realised I was influenced, I think, by two women writers in Australia who were leftists who wrote novels and they had they put their name together in Marjorie Barnard Eldershaw, M. Barnard Eldershaw, which I think at some back of my head must have been there. It sort of was an inspiration. And anyway, we did it. We enjoyed doing that. We were often mistaken for a male, a man. You know, we were invited to come to some big event in Portugal thinking we were some famous man, you know, and so we both turned up. And, <laughs> and since he's died, I actually do, whenever I I'm working on something that was part of our, our joint work, I still publish under that name. So I feel like I'm still in conversation in so many ways with her. And it was a very productive relationship and a wonderful friendship. Did you feel that you were roped into a double identity or did you sometimes want to write stuff on your own without, without her? Did you do that? I did. And I, and I certainly, when I've done work in Asia, for instance, alone or whatever, we, I, we have published alone as, as Gibson. Catherine Gibson or as Julie Graham. I think we 
the main thing we felt was the pleasure of it and the freedom that it gave to be more creative. And I guess we all always kind of loved what the other person wrote. So, and we were always able to help the other person pull out the ideas. So a lot of, I mean, we, we obviously lived in two, two different countries for many, most of our lives, but we always got together uh, in August in Massachusetts and usually January in Australia to, to work together, at least when we had the funds to, to travel. And it was during those times, we often called them our nunneries because we'd, we'd go away to some place and just, just work together. That was some of the most pleasurable times in, the, in our work life, really. And, you know, it also, it was, we also had various issues around different kinds of questions around identity within it. But in general, the, the collective identity was a real source of joy. And working alone is a different kind of thing. It has a different sort of feel to it. Could you give a, a little sense of Julie? I had a brief contact with her for several years, but you worked more closely with her. Maybe you could describe for listeners what kind of a personality she was and what kind of a intellect she was. Julie, well, she's a very tall and dark and uh, striking person and with a very engaging personality, very generous and funny and very inquisitive, really, and able to get the most out of other people, too. I think one of the things people always said about Julie is when you spoke to her, you felt like you were the only person in the world, that she was able to kind of focus on you and, and really help bring out what you were trying to say. So she was a, a very kind of courageous person as well, quite happy to move out of her comfort zone. And I think that showed when she moved out of kind of literature training into more social sciences, into areas that she didn't have that that background in and familiarity with. And then again into, you know, pretty classical Marxism we trained in for a long time, which was pretty hard going. And then into our other kind of work. So and I guess that, that adventurousness was something that was really part of our relationship. Part of working together meant that we could take on new work. So the whole movement to read post-structuralist philosophy was, again, a big agenda. It's something that you would not necessarily want to take on alone. And so moving from one body of theory to another and trying to get on top of it and muddle your way through was very, it was great to do with Julie because she she had thirst for that kind of thinking and, and of course, was very politically active and had come through some very torrid times, I think, in the feminist movement in the Connecticut Valley with the whole move from the rise of second wave feminism and then the rise of radical feminism and the kind of splintering that took place. So, you know, she had a lot of experience with, with organising, with, you know, the issues around personality and organising this kind of thing. And the other thing about Julie, she had an incredible love for nature. She lived out in the woods in Shootsbury, Massachusetts, where she, with other community members, had built her own house. And she just adored being in nature and was very affected by the changes that were occurring, the environmental degradation that's occurred with the Anthropocene and so on. So, so I think that shift for us also in trying to incorporate more of an ecological understanding into our feminism and our economics was something that she definitely was very passionate about. So she was a very passionate person too. Did you set out to try to develop a network of like-minded scholars or how did that evolve? How did the CERN network, the Community Economies Research Network, come to be? Tell me a little about its origins. It really started through the relationship we had with our PhD students and community researchers working with us and also in these action research projects in which many of our graduate students got employment. And we formed the Community Economies Collective early on, I think around 2000 or so. And that was a group of basically our, Julie and I and our graduate students and to some extent then their graduate students. So it was a smaller group that were working together, sometimes writing together, uh, getting grants together and trying to support each other in terms of getting positions and so on. 
really after Julie died, there was a small bequest from her estate, which we were able to use to have some writing retreats in Italy at a wonderful old convento, which is run by a social enterprise group. And and some various ideas came up about how to keep the initiative and the um, enthusiasm of the work going. And more people had been interested in our work at that point. So some people had joined the collective, but we decided it would be a good idea to form a research network, which was just a wider kind of email list of discussion. And I think the thing that really boosted it was the publication in 2013, a more popular book that Julie had started working on before she died, but it was alongside Jenny Cameron and Stephen Healy and myself. And Stephen had worked, done a PhD with Julie and Jenny with me, but we're both now this was Take Back the Economy. And this is Take Back the Economy, yes. So and it's a book that's very much targeted at a popular audience. And that book has been taken up by lots of people and used in lots of contexts and, and translated in lots of in lots of languages. And so it kind of reached out to people and many of them became interested in in being part of a wider network. So really over the Twitter from 2013, the net the research network has grown. So the collective became sort of the small organizing group and the network became a wider network of scholars that uh, share information and some of them have regional groups like in Sydney we have a, a meeting every month where we discuss re- readings of our own and help each other with publications. Talk a little bit about the scope and diversity of the CERN network because I, I know it's now quite an international network with you tell me how many countries but it's a rather diverse and it reflects a number of disciplinary perspectives as well. Yeah, I think there's about almost 280 people now in the network and it's in across the world. We do have a map that's on our website now, I think, that shows where everybody is. There's quite a lot of people in Europe and in Britain, but we've got also members in Asia and many in Australia and New Zealand, um, South America, particularly in Argentina and Chile and in the US, of course. So it's burgeoned and I guess it's it's come through connections, through people giving talks in different places and other people getting interested. There's just been an interesting kind of burgeoning of concern to have new ways of talking about economy. And that's where that connection has happened. So largely, I guess it's still dominantly people who are academics, but there's also quite a number of artists and they've been very interested in taking up community economies work. I think the idea of the iceberg, that visual has been taken up and used in lots of different ways by artists, activists who are interested in art and, and economy. And then there's also a lot of members of of initiatives in communities that have used the work. For instance, a group in South Korea, in Seoul, the Mapo Community House, who have taken you know, taken the, the, the Korean translation of Take Back the Economy and are using it as a kind of guide for their, their neighbourhood house that they've established where they have a community currency and small enterprises and co-ops and so on. So I think the only place we don't really have any members is Africa. And that's that's something that I think would be great to kind of work on connecting to people working in that context. At the same time, I think we, you know, we don't want to be an imperialistic kind of thing. We're very interested in connecting our kind of ethical economic thinking with other trends that are going on, particularly, say, in, in Indigenous communities. And we've had some very nice interactions, say, with Maori economic economic thinking. I'm very interested in seeing how we might work with notions of Ubuntu that are coming out of African 
uh, economic thinking as well. As a, a relative newcomer to that network, I'm really struck, one, at how activist-minded it is and how focused on practitioner experience as well, which I find refreshing for academic disciplines, which are often theory-bound or speaking to each other, whereas there's kind of an ecumenical openness that I have found in the network, which I think really makes it kind of fertile and exciting relative to what some other academic networks that I've known about. Yeah, well, I think that's something we've tried to foster. And that comes back to that idea of, of the subject and what kind of academic or, or research subject do we want to foster? Having that kind of open stance, that, that reparative stance. People sometimes critique us for not being critical enough, you know. <laughs> but I think that kind of critical paranoid sensibility that has typified so much of alternative economic thinking, it puts people off too. So I think we've often been grounded in the experience, in the kind of mapping out what we can find out from how do we do ethical negotiation on the ground rather than coming in with this kind of, oh, it's all going to be co-opted by the state, therefore we have to kind of have a critical stance immediately. So I guess there is a kind of an ethos that we've, a practice that we've tried to emulate and, and to do, and hopefully that rubs off as people join the network as well to see, to act in that kind of way together. Given the diversity of the network, and, and maybe you could characterize that, that, that diversity for me, how do you maintain a sufficient stability and coherence as a shared academic enterprise? Well, I think the only thing we really do is that in order to join the, the network, we ask people to talk to two other members of the network and be endorsed by them so that when they write their introductory statement of who they are and what they're doing and why they're interested in joining, they've had some kind of negotiation with someone already in the network to make sure that, that what they're doing is really aligned to some extent with the values or the interests of the network. So really, it just comes at that point. I don't think there's any other major governance role that we play apart from just the practice of being how we are together. I imagine then that you get the, the side currents and cross currents of Marxist studies, degrowth, the Ostrom scholarship community, and many other types of, what shall I say, adjacent or kin endeavors, but they're different. So in other words, you feel the influences of a, of a variety of different approaches. Yeah, and I think members of the network are more connected to some of those other networks. So some of them, are, some of the Europeans are very involved in the degrowth network, and, and then they'll, they'll advertise what's going on into our network. And others, members are very active in the Association for Social and Economic Analysis, which is more coming out of the UMass Marxist kind of anti-essentialist sort of uh, and rethinking Marxism journal. Is it possible to characterize what are the uh, hot topics or are there certain issues or agendas that are really attracting a lot of attention within the network right now? I'm not sure that there's a kind of hot topic in terms of debate, but I think in terms of us thinking about where the frontiers of thinking are within, in general, community economies work, I'd say one of the kind of areas is the engagement with ecological thinking and, and the idea that community must be a human and more than human thing. So what does it mean for economic thinking to uh, start to consider negotiations that are going on with soils or with plants? or And how do we bring that kind of environmental thinking into our economic practice and into our action research? So there's a interesting kind of work going on there that I think is typified probably by Ethan Miller's new book on ecological livelihoods, which is inspiring a lot of people within the network. 
So that's one area. I think the other area is the question of how we relate more to policy. And um, in some ways, we've been at arm's length from the state. People keep saying, where is the state in your analysis? And, you know, we kind of see it in many places, but we've never really developed a strong kind of policy agenda. And yet, so there's a wonderful book that's just come out by, from Finland uh, by Teppo Eskalen. He's looked at the kind of welfare state politics and community economies and how those things might come together in terms of ways of talking to policymakers from our perspective. But it is looking at the kind of the ethical overlaps in some ways between welfare state ethos and the kind of ethics that we're talking about. And where are their points of connection? It's something that I myself with a number of different commoners and practitioners and theorists are struggling with too about how state power might be reconfigured to be supportive, but not absorbing and co-opting. How the bureaucratic role might be adapted to be more supportive instead of command and control. This is especially timely in the internet age when there's so much distributed bottom-up creativity that we need to harvest as opposed to the credentialed experts from the state perspective. I think the other big area that is concerning us is this question of how we engage more with racialized thinking or, or racialized experience. And I think that's been forced, obviously, by the events of the last year. But, you know, there's many of us who work in different kinds of contexts that are where colonialism has, has made a huge impact on lives. And that, you know, that's and that's been developed to some extent. But there is, I think there's there is a lot of work to be doing to kind of think about how whiteness has has been part of the community economy experience and how not and where it is and where it isn't and where we go with that, how we develop a, a more racially diverse network and a set of concerns, but also how do we do that with recognition that there are what we might call community economy ways of thinking that are coming out of a range of different cosmologies and how do we do have a respectful relationship with those. That's another kind of very exciting area to work on, I think. There was a, a lecture given by a CERN network member, uh, Carol, who from Toronto speaking about the so-called black banker ladies who dealt with informal financial networks that were basically social networks that pooled their money. And I thought that was a fascinating uh, addition speaking to precisely the, the whiteness and the role of race in economics. That's right. That's right. And I think Carolyn's been very good at stimulating this debate, provoking us into more action around this question. And so I think that's something that is hopefully will develop. Let's uh, talk for a moment about the Handbook of Diverse Economies, which came out in 2019. Uh, tell me about its origins, because it, I think it represents such an enormous, what shall I say, coming together of so many different strands, showing in really quite rich detail the diversity of community economies. Tell me the thinking that went into that anthology and what you hope it will achieve. It just came out in 2020, 2000. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Okay. I stand corrected. You know, and it came out of a number of years of, of working, but well, we were invited to, it was very nice to be invited to put forward a, a handbook because it does kind of, I suppose, reflect back the fact that there is a sense in which there is a subfield now of this of this research. And so we, Kelly Dombrowski was the co-editor with me. We, we decided to engage as many people as we could from the, the CERN network who would be interested in writing chapters for that book. And we organized it around the same kind of categories that we'd used in Take Back the Economy in terms of diverse forms of labor, diverse forms of enterprise, of markets or transactions, of property and of finance. And we added a whole section on methodology. I think there's 56 chapters and about 66 authors. Some of the work is 
co-authored and from about 20 different countries, I think. Yeah, it is a great sort of overview of the possibilities for this work. And again, it's, there's plenty more that could be done. I think there's a lot of material there that can be used in, in teaching, but also to inspire different kinds of work for other researchers as well. There's a number of essays in there that I think speak rather directly to my concerns with the commons from a somewhat different perspective, of course, but there's, it's so, so rich that it's a suggestive of new types of conversations that need to occur between geographers, between community economies people, and commoners, uh, especially practitioners. So for me, it was a valuable resource in that way as well. This pity of it all was that it came out just as COVID hit. So we had hoped to have a whole lot of sessions at the American Geographers Conference where we would be able to launch the book and have some of these conversations in different areas. And we haven't been able to do that. There is work to be done now to kind of push it out there a bit more and have some of these conversations in different areas, whether it's around labor issues and basic income, for instance, or within commoning. Tell me what aspirations you or others in the network may have for for building the network, for carving out a richer territory. I'm just thinking about the future of the network and what directions you might want to see it go. Well, I mean, there's another element to our story, I suppose, which is that the collective is no longer in it. Sometimes we write, people, members of the Community Economies Collective still write as a joint author, but we've established a Community Economies Institute that has a membership of many of those people in the collective and a few others who sort of recognise that we need to have some kind of more organising format that can help to be the spine really for the network. So that institute is something that we would love to see get some funding that would be enable us to have sort of four people associated with it so that we could foster more collective research, for instance. Research in universities these days is very constrained by the certain kinds of grants that you can get. And many of the action research projects we've been involved in end up producing incredible outcomes, interventions and so on that then, you know, I get sort of stranded once the research project is over and we're interested in how do we support these things beyond the length of, a, of an academic research project. So I think having the, the Community Economies Institute more established would be a way of us fostering more action research, more ongoing policy discussion outside of the university and in its own kind of institute. So that's one of our agendas, whether we will be able to do it. And we're it's sort of unusual because we're all over the world. We're not one in one particular national polity. We've got the benefit of that, but the disbenefit of figuring out who is our, who do we, who do we go to for that kind of thing? I mean, increasingly with universities, you know, many of our new, new generations of students are not going to be able to get jobs in the university sector. And we're very interested in seeing what alternative pathways they might be for doing research within the Community Economies Institute that would also support people in their livelihood. There's an enormous need for that sort of applied action-oriented research that has some of the heft of academic depth. It's almost like a missing synapse because so many policy think tanks are simply propaganda vehicles yeah. and uh, not even connected with action. So to the extent that CERN people might be able to bridge that gap, it would be an enormous contribution. I hope so. The thing is to see if we can get that pitch recognized. But um <laughs> I understand you'll be uh, going to Harvard University for a one-year visiting appointment. Tell me a bit about that and, and some of the new connections and cooperations that you hope to establish. 
Yes, I have a fellowship I will be taking up. It's a, an Australian government-funded fellowship, which was a gift to the US on the occasion of their bicentenary. The name of it is, is hilarious because it's named after two of our prime ministers, the Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser, Chair of Australian Studies. And they were you know, arch enemies for many years because they were on two sides of politics. And when they both retired, they became the best of friends. So it's a very interesting one-year fellowship that many people from Australia have, have occupied. Because there's no real geography department at Harvard, it was interestingly closed down in the 50s, I'll be attached to the Centre for Gender and Sexuality and Women's Studies, which I'll, so I'll be teaching some kind of feminist, economic and Australian focused. Are there other topics that you think we should be discussing here? I would be interested to hear some of the thought you had about how your approach to commenting might be different or alongside the kind of work that we've done yeah. I think commenting has such an affinity with the community economies research because both are heterodox and exploratory in ways that many disciplines are not. Many disciplines are about building out the framework that everyone has consensually agreed to, as opposed to being rather thoughtfully promiscuous in bringing new new voices to the conversation. And I think that's what CERN is so interesting because it shows that there are really a number of different relevant perspectives to bring. And I think that's very akin to what I've experienced in the commons world, where people are driven by real challenges in real particularized circum circumstances, and that over-theorizing does violence to what people's experiences are. Mm. And even going further, people's experiences in a subjective sense are arguably at the heart of it all. And much academic study is really more behavioralist or externally focused or uh, objectifies things rather than focusing more intimately with relationships, which is why I think the feminist theory that many CERN people come with is so helpful because it really shows that a, a relational ontology, as my colleague Silke Helfrich and I have thought about with respect to the commons, a relational ontology really hel helps illuminate a lot of things that the standard economics, for starters, just doesn't see, doesn't care about. Mm. So I think those are some of the, I think, the philosophical connections, but also for me, the open-ended frontier of actual practice, which is grossly under-theorized, and maybe some of it won't ever be theorized because it's embodied. Mm. Um, so, you know, those are some of the thoughts that I have about how the two worlds might constructively play off of each other. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, for us, the, the commoning discussion, really, we moved into that by trying to extend our diverse economy perspective to think about property, which we hadn't done originally. We'd, we'd really been focused on questions of labour and enterprise and, and transactions. When it came to doing take, producing Take Back the Economy, we realised, well, we really need to be engaging with diverse forms of property and different relationality around property things and also finance, which was a very difficult one for us because it's not, not our easy, an easy area for us to think about. Those two areas were really extending us a lot and that's where we got so much out of reading your work and other people's work in the commoning field. It's been a really productive thing because I think the term is one that's been taken up in so many ways that sort of stands aside from the old class politics and it has a lot of usefulness I think as a new common sense so I'm really interested in that you know developing that further. 
I continue to find new layers of the onion to peel off. And I think that half the challenge is simply escaping some of the vocabularies and concepts that we take for granted and emancipating ourselves from that. And for that's what my experience in researching, thinking, and working with Silke Helfrich on Free, Fair, and Alive was about, because we discovered that talking about natural resources was inadequate because that presumed a certain utility for them, or to even to talk about property in conventional legal terms was too inhibiting because it presumed certain types of human relationships with each other or with the earth. Mm. So Mm. part of this is about inventing new vocabularies, not for the sake of it, but to name practices as they're experienced and to escape some of these somewhat archaic or brittle inherited terms, which I think are limiting our grasp of the new realities out there. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's why one of the core aspects of our work has been a politics of language, coming up with a different kind of language of economy. And that's that that then helps you to become a different subject because you can speak a different way about what's real to you. Well, I want to thank you for sharing this time with me and with the listeners and giving me and others more insight into your work and and the CERN work. I'm thrilled to be part of the CERN network myself. Great. Well, thank you, David. It's been lovely to talk to you.